We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to The Truth Perspective on the Sot Radio Network, the world for people who think. Okay, can everyone hear us now? Anything? Okay, <laughs> hello, welcome. Sorry for the technical difficulties there. Um, this is the second week of The Truth Perspective. And today we're going to be talking about, uh, we're gonna do a bit, bit of a two-part show um, first of all, talking about the recently released CIA torture report from the Senate investigation, and then we're going to get into a bit about uh, early Christianity and maybe even find some connections between the two. And uh, so, just as a little bit of an aside, we did ha- we are experiencing some technical difficulties. So if anything um, if anything crops up and if you can't hear us or anything, just let us know in the chat room and we will do our best to fix things. And next week, hopefully, we'll have it all ironed out and we'll start out fresh and with better quality sound. But until then, we're just going to have to make do with what we've got. So uh, to start out, like I said, the Senate torture report on CIA enhanced interrogation techniques. Um, today, joining us, we have SOT editors Ilan, Tiffany, and William, and I am your host, as usual, Harrison Cayley. Hello, so, everyone. Yeah, say hi. Hey there. Hi, everybody. <laughs> so, uh, first thoughts, um, background information. What's up with this CIA report? Anybody? Well, it's intriguing on the timing of uh, of it being brought out now. Uh, there seems to be, there must be some sort of agenda for it to come out. Um, I'm not too clear as to why now. I mean, this has been going on for, for over a decade. Um, so that's a big question in my mind. Well, this just to give a little bit of background, of course, the whole situation with that led to this report um, was the CIA torture program, which was developed after September 11th, um, with the you know, ostensible purpose of interrogating suspects in connection with the attacks and gaining intelligence to find all those uh, evil evildoers that were connected in some way. And this became a bit of an issue in the years afterwards as details leaked and were and emerged. Um, in 2008, um, the ball started kind of got rolling um, when 56 Democrats 
called for an independent investigation. Now, it was only in the next year, 2009, that the Senate's Intelligence Committee voted to conduct an investigation. So that's the investigation that has just been released. Um, it was completed, I believe, in 2012. Um, at least that's when the report was um, was approved in that form. And so it's been about a year and a half, two years since since then. And of course, the full report is 6,000 pages or more, um, you know, culled from millions of documents and memos and emails, allegedly. And what we have, um, which was released, was like the 540-page summary, which lists a lot, uh, you know, some of the main conclusions of the of the Senate investigation um, and a lot of the details. And even those 540 pages, in my mind, are you know damning enough. Um, of course, it would be interesting to see what else um, what else is contained in the in the full report. Um, but um, as for what is in this report and what we know, um, again, not too many surprises. I mean, if you've been paying attention to what's going on and if you've been reading the news, if you and even if you have just any kind of idea of how the CIA operates, nothing in this report should come as a surprise. Um, in fact, um, it's kind of um, lightweight when looked at in, from, from the larger perspective of the entire history of the CIA and what we know they do. Um, so, um, do you have anything to add, Tiffany, on this introduction? Well, when the report came out, they kind of made it seem like this was something new, like the CIA just did this after 2001. Um, but the CIA, they released the training manual back in 1983 called the Human Resource Exploitation Training Manual. And it um, it starts out with the prohibition against using force against people because they know it has unreliable results. It can lead to prosecution um, and adverse publicity. But they said it's okay to use psychological ploys and verbal tricking and non-violent and non-coercive means to get information from people. But then in that same report, they go on and explain that coercive techniques are bad, but they're going to go ahead and explain the proper way to use them <laughs> so they can avoid using them. <laughs> yeah. So this torture is not new. It's not something that the CIA just embarked upon after 9-11. And even if you take the CIA out of it, torture is not new. You can go all the way back to medieval times and putting people on the rack and thumb screws and all the mm -hmm. things that they did back then. So torture isn't anything that's a new invention just to, you know, catch the 19th or to conduct the 9-11. Well, with this specifically and, and this, um, the, pro, the, the, the torture program that was specifically developed in this, in this context and what was revealed in the report, um, if we look at some of the the techniques that have been used, like I said, they've been they've been called enhanced interrogation, and that includes such things as um, waterboarding, um, beating. So you know, beating to the point of um, anything from you know open-handed slaps to full-on beatings with that result in broken limbs and uh, sleep deprivation. Um, a word that I had never heard of before. I'm sure that um, that some of probably medical experts have heard of it, but uh, forced, quote, rectal rehydration. 
which is um, uh, a method of inserting nutrients through the, you know, through the rectum, um, even when it's not uh, medically um, suggested, like if it's, if it's not medically required. Um, the use of insects, um, <laughs> apparently locking these guys in, in rooms with insects, I guess that's one of the techniques, mock burials, um, putting putting the subjects in diapers. Um, some were left hanging by their wrists in so-called stress positions, um, even um, if they had broken limbs. So they were left to, to stand for hours on end with broken feet or legs or um, suspended from the ceiling, you know, in chains with, with broken arms or hands. Um, not only that, also the use of hypothermia. So keeping the temperature of the cells or wherever they're being kept um, at a low at a low temperature and then dousing them with cold water. Um, some of the, the guys there showed signs of uh, anal rape um, using, you know, whatever kind of objects, you know, if you you probably get an idea of what they're using by going back to Abu Ghraib and some of the stories coming out of there. Um, so that's the kind of thing that these, uh, that has been going on. And as a, a kind of coincidence, probably not so much a coincidence. Now, um, they call it enhanced interrogation. They don't call it torture. It's widely accepted as torture. Everyone knows it's torture. But enhanced interrogation, where does that word come from? Well, uh, as far as historians can tell, the first use of that word was in German, and it was in uh, a manual written by the Gestapo in Nazi Germany. They used the word enhanced interrogation. And some of the techniques that they prescribed in there included cold exposure, uh, blows and kicks to the body, um, stress positions, sleep deprivation. Now, the interesting thing about this Gestapo report is that they did not allow things like waterboarding and um, and initially, I mentioned cold exposure, but initially they didn't allow cold exposure, uh, hypothermia. Of course, you know, later on that kind of creeped in and they used it. But these are the exact same techniques that the CIA is using. The CIA is basically working from the Gestapo hand, handbook and not only using the same terminology, enhanced interrogation, but the exact same techniques. So whenever, you know, uh, how is that for a connection? The CIA, the United States government, is using the same techniques, the same torture techniques uh, for the same purposes even as uh, Nazi Germany, the Gestapo. Like psychopathic wisdom passed down to the generations. Yeah. And uh, it's just mind-boggling. And then the question becomes, you know, w w what is this enhanced interrogation really designed to do? Uh, we know that we don't get uh, good information from torture. Um, that's already been shown by other branches in the military who've, uh, who've analyzed it. So uh, what you really have is um, organized terror. You mm -hmm. have... Um, the population who hears about uh, these techniques being employed on you know, so-called uh, suspects or terrorists and becoming terrified of, uh, of, of, this, uh, of, of these acts. Just that reminded me of one other thing that came out in this report. Um, in addition to all the so-called you know, techniques, the torture methods, they would, um, there were several cases of the threatening the, the inmates with death, 
threatening to rape or murder their mothers and their families. I mean, this, it is, it's terrorism. That's exactly what it's designed for, terror, to instill terror into these people. And um, not only that, the, when we get to the, the motivations for it, um, the, the, the two, the, the, well, the program was developed by these two um, Air Force, I believe, psychologists. And their, their firm was basically paid like $80 million or something, and the government paid like $5 million in law, in, in law fees. And there was an interview with one of these guys that uh, Vice produced. Um, it was his first public appearance in relation to this because he's been linked to the torture um, for years, but there's never been any kind of official confirmation and he hasn't been interviewed about it. So, so Vice interviewed this guy. And even he admitted that the, the program wasn't even developed to um, get any kind of useful information. In his words, it was developed to break down the, well, he didn't use the word breakdown, but it was developed to break down the subjects using a kind of good cop, bad cop, where the torture would um, essentially show the guy, the bad cop, how bad they could be, and that would loosen them up so that the good cop could come in and then establish some rapport and gain some intelligence. Now, of course, that, like, that's not exactly how it works, as we can see from um, like Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who um, basically admitted to every crime committed in the last hundred years under torture. And so to say that on the one hand that torture doesn't produce uh, good intelligence, which it doesn't, and then then we have the example of that, the proof of that it produced all this bad intelligence. And then to say that, oh, but it was actually to loosen them up for the interrogators who got good intelligence. Well, even that falls through because they didn't get in, any good intelligence. And that was one of the, the conclusions from this report. Well, one of the arguments that they made is that the interrogation techniques they were using before the enhanced interrogation techniques weren't getting the results that they wanted. So, therefore, they had to step it up a notch. But it came out that they were pursuing these techniques in torture before they even had any prisoners at Gitmo. So, that tells me that the whole purpose of these techniques is not to gain intelligence. It's just to satisfy the sadistic wing of the CIA and give these guys who like to torture people something to do. That's their thing. That's what they mm -hmm. want to do, and they need a place to do it. So why mm -hmm. not do it at Gitmo or any other black site that's around the world? Exactly. I mean, who tortures people? And, and well, you know, sadly... Some people may not be aware. We are. We talk about it all the time. That there are, there is a large percentage, well, relatively large group of people on this planet that enjoy making people suffer, watching them suffer. They enjoy it. And you know, so who do you get to torture people? Well, obviously, you're going to get someone that enjoys it, that doesn't have a problem with it. And this is an outlet for them. Um, I'm actually, I'm, I'm reading a book right now um, by Sibel Edmonds. She wrote. Uh, of course, she's the the, whist, the FBI whistleblower that uh, came out several years ago, um, talking about um, the connections between so you know Al Qaeda and State Department and some shady things going on there. But she wrote a novel um, inspired by all these actual events because when she originally tried to produce to to release her book on it, of course she uh, 
there were several gag orders against her. And but she found out that you can pretty much say anything you want if you call it fiction. So she did re- publish one book on um, on her story and uh, you know her kind of career as a whistleblower. But in this book, uh, it's kind of a fictionalized account that go- goes into a, a whole lot more detail. Uh, of course, using fictional names, but you can kind of mix and match and figure out who's who. But one of the points she makes in the book is that the CIA looks for people. They look for psychopaths. She says that, says that explicitly, that they, they look for psychopaths because they know that psychopaths are the ones that can torture people, that they, they can kill people um, on a whim, and they can get a, that suffer no remorse from it and can just carry out the job. And that these are the guys that become um, these kind of um, black ops, People that uh, commit assassinations, they you know engage in blackmail and torture, and um, it makes sense if you if you look at the history of the CIA. The history has the CIA has a history of killing people, assassinating people. Now, now these things aren't public. They they don't even exist in a way that you can get definite confirmation of them. But you know, everyone knows they happen. And do you really think that the CIA, that some agent that goes out and, you know, tortures a guy to death and then dumps his body is going to file a report that is then picked up by, you know, some Senate Intelligence Committee and then they write a report on it and take it to, to the White House? That's, it's just not going to happen. It's ridiculous to think that that's going to happen. And so the, the fact that we've got this report, it's, it's like a, it's a limited hangout that they've um, they've got this program, which is a very minor program, considering what what actually goes on. And when you look at the the Nazi Gestapo um, enhanced interrogation, they explicitly said that this was for a specific purpose, and that purpose was for when they wanted to extract information or torture people and not leave marks. Basically, they wanted to be able to do it, and then um, if they didn't end up killing the person, you know, set them free, and there'd be very little evidence. This would be kind of like this small internal matter for um, outing people and you know getting in, in intelligence. At least that's the, the the purpose they said for it. So on top of this, of course, there's stuff like even worse than this going on all the time. And then you know you can get into things like false flag terrorism and the black ops that go on constantly on this planet. So this is just the tip of the iceberg. And for anyone that's shocked by this, um, you know, I just they really haven't been paying attention the past 60 years. Like, do they think these torturers, you know, sit down with their secretary and they dictate a list of everything <laughs> that they did to this guy and they submit a report? <laughs> I mean, these guys are just going wild on these people and doing whatever they want and they get away with it. Yeah. Killing people, torturing them, threatening their families. Oh my God! So what they wrote about, I think that's a lot of, a lot of it is to scare people and to show their power. But I don't think it's even half of what they truly do. On another level, completely, you know, it's just interesting to consider that, um, you know, like the Fox News discussion about this whole report was uh, was pretty interesting. You know, some pundits were saying that this was politically motivated and. You know, it was after 9-11 and we had to do what we had to do. Um, but I, I think there's a whole other kind of uh, question to this whole subject. And that is, you know, the, the individual's choice uh, in hearing these stories uh, to decide for themselves 
um, whether or not this was quote unquote justified, uh, or if it really is a, a kind of acquiescence um, that uh, people will give to this story uh, to what is essentially just really evil uh, behavior. So um, I think I think on some level uh, the, the conscience of um, of people who are aware of the story uh, or choosing not to be aware of it, choosing to be ignorant, um, is being tested, and mm-hmm. uh, and it it kind of um, reflects on who they are and what they're allowing uh, where we live. Well, speaking of people's different responses and the, some of the things that have come in the media, we've got a couple clips here um, from a recent Fox News program. <laughs> I know we all love Fox News, right? Now, Fox News is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so this, these first couple clips um, were aired recently. This is from the so-called Fox News national security analyst, KT McFarland. Now, she was Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Public Affairs uh, under President Reagan. And I think after she lost, um, it was either a congressional or, or Senate uh, position. She didn't get the position, so she went on to, to, spout, to spout spin for Fox News. And so she, the, the reporter has just asked her about the, the timing of the release. And uh, here's what she had to say. The report is now saying the intelligence didn't really help. These enhanced interrogation techniques didn't really take us anywhere. There are plenty of folks saying, yes, they did. I mean, and they're pointing to specific instances of where those interrogations actually led to mm-hmm. actionable intelligence. Your take. Well, the report is making two claims. One, what was done was illegal. No, it wasn't. The, the legal advice at the time to the Americans who were conducting these investigations was, yeah, it is legal. And as you point out, it was done in the aftermath of September 11th. I watched those Twin Towers come down. I live in New York. We assumed there was another attack coming imminently. Okay. Well, that, yeah, that was a different clip. Um, so basically, you know, what she said, oh, there was an imminent attack after 9-11, so of course we did this. And first of all, um, you know, they had legal advice, so this, this was totally legal. Um, you know, what planet is this woman living on? She's, so uh, it, it, it's legal because... Some people told the CIA that it was legal. No, it was not legal. It never was. That's why, uh, you know, what's his, what's his name came up with the, the, the justification for torture. Um, well, it was a, uh, but then John Wu, there was his memo where he, um, or where he basically told Bush that, you know, everything was all right. Well, you know, the thing about law is that if, if you if you write the laws and then say something's legal, of course you know you can you can say that it's legal. But this was some really shady legal argument going on there. Um, so it's no, it's not that if you get legal advice and someone tells you, okay, you can get away with this, that it's necessarily legal. Uh, it's certainly it's not moral. No, it's exactly, and that's what this really comes down to. Is um, it's not a matter of if the intelligence you get is accurate or not. Um, okay, so let's say that, that we got plenty of good intelligence for it. Um, so does that mean that the U.S. becomes a country that um, is okay with torture because we got good intelligence out of it? Okay, so yeah, then, well, fine, you know, go ahead, America. Like, you can go down in history as the Ted Bundy of nations. 
you know, that's perfectly okay, but just be aware of it, that that's what you are and that's what you've become. Um, and if you agree with that, fine, but, um, you know, that's your choice if you want to, if you want to get behind stuff like that. Um, okay, well, let's, uh, let's go on to the second part of her answer here. Okay, here we go. The second thing is, was the, were these, um, what was the intelligence gathered? Was it effective? Look, we've had three former directors of the CIA, deputy directors of the CIA, people involved in the hunt for Osama bin Laden. They have all said that they got a lot of intelligence from this. So it was legal. It was effective. Why go after it now? Unless the motivation is completely political. Exactly. So it's political. That's the only reason we're going after this. Um, you know, it has nothing to do with ethics and transparency and, you know, letting the American people what's being done in their name. It's just a matter of politics. You know, they choose to do it now. Um, well, you know, in a sense, she's kind of right, right? It's like... From her point of view, from a psychopathic point of view, for all the, the sheeple out there who believe the official story of 9-11, they probably wouldn't have any trouble swallowing what she's saying, but... Well, but, but uh, you know, from from her from her perspective, I think she's totally wrong because she's trying to dismiss the torture report because of its politicization, and she's saying that the motivations are behind are are political behind it. It has nothing to do with with what it, what's really going on. And um, but in a sense, she is right because um, do these is this really going to change anything? Is this is this representative of what, of what's really going on and still going on? I mean. One of the take-home messages from this report is that um, the torture program has stopped, right? We're not doing this anymore. Um, there's you know, no mention of the fact that the, this is standard operating procedure. It's not, like, um, it's not like this is the only instance of CIA torture in history. Um, this is one specific example, and it was one program developed by these two guys. And back to that vice interview, even then he said um, that he, that the CIA probably has other interrogation programs. He doesn't know about them. This was just the one that he developed. Well, he didn't even admit that. He's under a non-disclosure agreement, so he couldn't uh, confirm or deny that he was directly involved in, uh, in developing the program. But uh, moving on, um, after KT McFarland, there's uh, another show on Fox News that aired um, this is a show outnumbered, hosted by Andrea Tantaros. And if you thought KT McFarlane was bad, uh, <laughs> which we'll get to Andrea. But first, um, this is kind of like a roundtable discussion on, on this program. And uh, so the first guy that you're going to hear is um, Fox correspondent Jesse Waters. Now, this is a short little clip. Um, so just take a look. Take a look at this one. Do the American people have a right to know? Jesse, your thought. I don't want to know about it. I think people do nasty things in the dark, especially after a terrorist attack. Okay. I don't want to know about it. I just want to keep my head in the sand. <laughs> and you should, too. Yeah. 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 People do a lot of, of nasty things in the dark during a terrorist attack, and I don't want to hear about it. Um, wow. Classic authoritarian uh, thinking, also, you know? Uh, leave it up to uh, the CIA. Uh, they they uh, they know what they're doing. They have everything under control. Don't mm -hmm. worry. 
Don't worry. Don't tell me about it. Dancing with the stars. We'll take care of it. Okay, this is just too much fun, so we're going to listen to Jesse again. To say that this is about transparency at the CIA, you know, the Democrats didn't care about transparency when they were destroying hard drives at the IRS, so I'm just not buying it. (laughs) Oh, well, what can you say? Um, Jesse's an idiot, but... uh, (laughs) Okay, now, this is where it gets interesting. Andrea Tenteros. Um, Some of our listeners have probably heard this already because it's kind of going viral around the Internet. Uh, Jon Stewart has had a little segment on it. Um, I think Russell Brand even. But um, it just deserves to be heard in all its American glory. Sunlight at the CIA? I'm sorry, that's one place I don't need sunlight. I don't think they need to give me a lot of transparency at the CIA. Look, thousands of Americans were killed after 9-11. The Bush administration did what the American public wanted, and that was do whatever it takes to keep us safe. These terror tactics have been stopped because as a country, we decided we are better than this, so we stopped them, which is my point. Then why are we putting out this memo? We've had this discussion, we've had this debate, and it's not about democracy now. No, no, it's about politics. It's about Democrats being so fundamentally lost as a party, Harris, they have to return to an old playbook. The plays that they ran right when Obama got into office trying to prosecute CIA officials for these terror tactics, and that same playbook that they feel got them the House of Representatives back, even under Tom DeLay's electoral map. They were screaming about this. It's how they were winning elections. Elections. They have nothing else to talk about, and they don't want to talk about Gruber or healthcare or the IRS or anything else. All right, but yeah, um, the IRS, Gruber, uh, healthcare—that's all vastly more important than the fact that uh, Americans torture people. Now, notice—did you notice in her little uh, rant there that she referred to the 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 enhanced interrogation as terror tactics? I don't know if this is deliberate on her part or not, but she said, but, you know, we've stopped these terror tactics because the country realizes she essentially called the American government, the CIA, a terrorist organization for using these terror tactics. And it's not that she does it twice in that clip. Um, and if I can't remember if there were two in that clip or if there was one in the next one. But um, I just thought that was a nice little slip that uh, in there she admits that the CIA used terror tactics. Um, but uh, on with Andrea, we're getting to the good stuff right here. And look, I agree with you. The United States of America is awesome. We are awesome. But we've had this discussion. We've closed the book on it and we've stopped doing it. And the reason they want to have this discussion is not to show how awesome we are. This administration wants to have this discussion to show us how we're not awesome. This administration they apologize for this country. I mean, they this, don't like this country. There are, they want, they so want us to look bad. And all this does is have our enemies laughing at us. Yeah. All this does is have our enemies laughing at us. Because America really is awesome. And the... Uh, the only thing motivating these people for publishing this report is to show how not awesome we are. Uh, are we 12 years old? Are we on the playground arguing about who is awesome and who is not awesome? <laughs> apparently. Well, apparently that's what the you know, viewers of Fox News, you know, mm-hmm. what they think. Well, that's what Fox News wants people to think. And, uh, well, I guess they do have to fill the air and, you know, they have bills to pay, so they have to say something, no matter how stupid it is. Okay. Well, anyway... I think we've had enough of Andrea, but do, yeah, search the clip out because there's some more good stuff on there. 
um, you know, coming from Jesse again, and then some more from Andrea. And, you know, I, I wasn't sure that they could fit this in or not, but they did. Um, they essentially end up blaming Russia. And, uh, okay, well, I'll, I'll play that clip just so you can hear it. It's a short one. Conversation really should be about the horrific abuse of women and children in the Middle East and what North Korea is doing to its citizen, citizens and what Russia continues to, how it continues to abuse its citizens to this day. Uh, what the real issue is, what we should really be talking about is not the fact that we torture people, but the fact that Russia mistreats its citizens. How, you know, how horrible is that? Yeah, uh, I just, I laughed when I heard that. I mean, a discussion on an internal, you know, the, uh, a, a, a report into the use of torture by the CIA and somehow they managed to fit in blaming Russia and saying that uh, we should really be talking about Russia instead because Russia is so bad. We shouldn't be talking about things that are wrong with America, things that we've done in the past, things that we're not doing anymore. We should be talking about the real issues in the world, like Russia. Classic case of deflection. Uh -huh. Let's not pay attention to that. Let's talk about something else. I'd like to bring in something that uh, <clears throat> Ron Paul caught my eye on, uh, something he just wrote recently. And, uh, yeah, it's one thing that people argue that they shouldn't have uh, their feet broken and forced to stand and be cuffed to a wall and opposed to rectal force feeding and uh, condemn waterboarding a detainee 50 or 100 times. Uh, yeah, most people do reject that kind of torture. But that's not the only kind of torture. I mean, isn't torture uh, uh, when you go to a wedding in Pakistan and watch your family get blown up by a U.S. drone? Is it not torture when your village water treatment plant is bombed by NATO planes seeking to overthrow Gaddafi? And torture is also for the parents of 500,000 Iraqi children who were killed by U.S. sanctions. Um, it's endorsing preemptive war, knowing that thousands of civilians are sure to be collateral damage. Is that not a support of torture? And, you know, he makes a great point. The, the consistent uh, anti-torture position would also reject sanctions, humanitarian interventions, regime change, and preemptive war. Anything less is missing the whole point. Mm -hmm. I mean, we should all be more than just disgusted and ashamed. This all has to be put to a stop. We have to bring humanity back into our, into our daily lives and into politics. Yeah, I can't add anything to that. Um, but, and that kind of, that kind of proves KT McFarland's point. That this is really, a, it's all, it's all politics at this point, right? Because all these things that you said, William, are, are torture. Right. And they're, they're mass torture and they're mass, they're, it's serial murder, what's going on. Serial murder and torture. And stripping people of their humanity. And, yeah. and that's the purpose of this. I mean, that's why people torture people. It's, to demean them, to humiliate them, to, to stamp out whatever actual humanity exists on this planet. And it happens, it happens to, you know, several different um, types of people, groups of people. It's just people in general who are in, in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, because at least 26 of the 119 um, people listed as being tortured in this report, or the, uh, that were listed as being um, held, um, incarcerated, um, 26 of these people were uh, wrongfully arrested and tortured for So the way I see it, 
the question isn't why should you work for the NSA the question is why shouldn't you why shouldn't I work for the NSA it's a tough one <laughs> but I'll take a shot say I'm working at the NSA and somebody puts a code on my desk something no one else can break Maybe I take a shot at it, and maybe I break it. And I'm real happy with myself because I did my job well. But maybe that code was the location of some rebel army in North Africa or the Middle East. And once they had that location, they bombed the village where the rebels are hiding. 1,500 people that I never met, never had no problem with, get killed. Now the politicians are saying, oh, send in the Marines to secure the area because they don't give a shit. It won't be their kid over there getting shot, just like it wasn't them when their number got called because they were all pulling a tour in the National Guard. It'll be some kid from Southie over there taking shrapnel in the ass. He comes back to find that the plan he used to work at got exported to the country he just got back from, and the guy who put the shrapnel in his ass got his old job because he'll work for 15 cents a day and no bathroom breaks. Meanwhile, he realizes the only reason he was over there in the first place was so that we could install a government that would sell us oil at a good price. And, of course, the oil companies use a little skirmish over there to scare up domestic oil prices. A cute little ancillary benefit for them, but it ain't helping my buddy at two fifty a gallon. They're taking their sweet time bringing the oil back, of course. Maybe they even took the liberty of hiring an alcoholic skipper who likes to drink martinis and fucking play slalom with the icebergs. It ain't too long till he hits one, spills the oil, and kills all the sea life in the North Atlantic. So now my buddy's out of work, he can't afford to drive, so he's walking to the fucking job interviews, which sucks because the shrapnel in his ass is giving him chronic hemorrhoids. And meanwhile, he's starving because every time he tries to get a bite to eat, the only blue plate special they're serving is North Atlantic Scrod with Quaker State. So what did I think? I'm holding out for something better. I figure, fuck it, while I'm at it, why not just shoot my buddy? Take his job, give it to his sworn enemy, hike up gas prices, bomb a village, club a baby seal, hit the hash pipe, and join the National Guard. I could be elected president. Can you say why America is the greatest country in the world? Well, why is America not the greatest, the greatest country in the world, Professor? That's my answer. You're saying yes. Let's talk about fine. The Sharon, the NEA is a loser. Yeah, it accounts for a penny out of our paycheck, but he gets to hit you with it anytime he wants. It doesn't cost money. It costs votes. It costs airtime and column inches. You know why people don't like liberals? Because they lose. If liberals are so fucking smart, how come they lose so goddamn always? Hey. And with a straight face, you're going to tell students that America is so star-spangled awesome that we're the only ones in the world who have freedom? Canada has freedom. Japan has freedom. The UK, France, Italy, Germany, Spain, Australia, Belgium has freedom. So 207 sovereign states in the world, like 180 of them have freedom. All right. And yeah, you, uh, sorority girl, just in case you accidentally wander into a voting booth one day, there's some things you should know. And one of them is... There is absolutely no evidence to support the statement that we're the greatest country in the world. We're 7th in literacy, 27th in math, 22nd in science, 49th in life expectancy, 178th in infant mortality, 3rd in median household income, number 4 in labor force, and number 4 in exports. We lead the world in only three categories. Number of incarcerated citizens per capita, number of adults who believe... Okay, we're back. Sorry about that. It's been a heck of a day with technical issues. Uh, we actually lost our internet connection there for a while. But um, we were just finishing up on talking about the, the torture. And um, basically, the, the concluding point is simply that uh, this is uh, a time to, to choose and kind of show 
what you really think and um, basically if you have any humanity or not. Um, do you support torturing people or don't you? You know, um, that's really what, com- what it comes down to. Do you have a conscience? Do you think it is worth it to demean, humiliate, and obliterate a person in such a way um, for whatever purpose? Uh, that's what it comes down to. But um, we are going to move on to part two of our show today. And um, sitting with me now in the studio, because we've got a house full of people here just waiting to talk about things, we have uh, Larry. Hi, it's me. Karen. Howdy. And Adam. Hey, y'all. And now we're going to be moving on to a somewhat related topic, because uh, we're talking about control systems and torture and killing people, and what better way to uh, you know exemplify all those things than in an institution like uh, religion, and specifically Christianity, which has a history of torturing people. And you can even search online for some of the you know, medieval torture implements you use, and you see a nice, beautiful crucifix attached to those... Um, Wonderful hand clamps. Yeah, the hand clamps. I've marked the spot. So, um, well, Christianity, what can we say? Uh, What do we know about it? We know that it's one of the biggest religions in the world. It's been around for a long time. And millions, billions of people profess themselves to be Christians. And yet, when we at the document that they turn to as Holy Scripture, um, things are not quite as we think they are. So in that line, and all several books, but uh, interrupted by, and he's a um, kind of goes through by Bible texts and different variants and manuscripts, and um, you know there are guys that spend their entire lives um, comparing wordings and the you know curves of different letters um, used in Greek script, all kinds of conclusions about them. But we're going to be talking a little bit, um, just using that as, as kind of a jumping off point to talk a bit about uh, Christianity, the early well, um, But first, getting a little bit of an idea on uh, from our hosts here on their history and um, how Christianity fits into their lives, so where they come from. Well, I'll start with Adam. So Adam, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, you know where you come up, where you come from. Uh, my bra- my background. Um, was born and raised uh, Southern Baptist my whole life, and I was forced to attend every church service that that there was uh, for my church um, up until I was 20. Um, so it was a very fundamentalist. Uh, you know, it was almost like a, you see on uh, Joel Osteen, how he had hold up the Bibles in their right hand and say, this is the infallible word of God and it is completely inerrant and everything in it is true. And it's, it's just, uh, it's mind boggling, uh, after having, you know, examined some of the texts from some, uh, Bible scholars that, you know, it's, it's not infallible, mm-hmm. but you know, that, that's what people are taught and whether the minister knows. It. Well, what about you? Believe, are you a firm? Uh, I was. 
um, when I was uh, age, uh, had all the I was making friend was just about um, Okay, more technical difficulties. Let's see what's going on. We are connected. Um, okay, we're just going to try um, logging in. Oh, we're back. We're good. Okay, good to hear. <laughs> it's a miracle. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> well, so then, so I guess, Adam, when you turned 20, it was kind of like, okay, I'm out of here, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was pretty much done with it. I uh, tried to stay friends with some of the people, but there's just, there's no having any kind of conversations with them because it always mm -hmm. eventually got back to, uh, came back to the religion and, and uh, so I just had to cut ties and yeah. move on. Well, uh, me personally, I, I've kind of come from a totally different background. I was uh, I was raised Roman Catholic, but um, when I when I think back about my kind of religious education, one I'd never read the Bible. I had no interest in reading the Bible. I had you know I had to go to church every Sunday, but I'd kind of just like uh, you know dissociate and doze off during the sermons. So you know I I, I knew next to nothing about what it was to be a Catholic. Um, you know, I, I said my prayers every night, though. Um, and But that was about the extent the, the extent of it. Um, we never really had a, a super hardcore, um, you know, religious overtone in our family or anything like that. So for me, I didn't really have notions about what was going on because I, I, I never really had that that need to believe in the Bible, um, so when I started reading books like this, like uh, like Bart Ehrman's, um, it was just kind of interesting. I was like, oh, okay, yeah, that's how it works. Um, but I never really went through that um, that you know crisis, that that crisis of faith. Um, but I don't know. Did uh, have any? What what about you guys? Um, my parents were spiritualists. Okay. That kind of faded into the background as I got to be, you know, five, six years old. Yeah. They sent me to the Methodist uh, Sunday school. Oh, yeah. Um, that that was fun, you know. You got to clean mm -hmm. things like that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> by, by the time I was fourteen, fifteen, um, I viewed religion as a crutch. Yeah. And it was a crutch I felt that I could overcome. I didn't. I didn't need it. And uh, you know. It wasn't scientific, yeah. Good job. <laughs> so uh, I kind of let it go. <laughs> my, my background is very similar to the last two, both you and Harrison. Uh, nothing serious. Uh, my parents exposed uh, the three kids to <clears throat> Sunday school, very similar, and but very little indoctrination. And when we got old enough to refuse to go, they didn't stand yeah. up. And Good, yeah, same here. Well, and that's so we're coming from you know very specific points of view and and background in history. Uh, keep our keep our biases in mind as, <laughs> as you're listening. But what what strikes me is is that the, the entire time I went to church, the the interesting thing that comes up in this book is that I wasn't aware of a whole lot of stuff that apparently knowledge on a certain and the people in the Bible, but also, so what does it mean when people go to Maryland and study? They learn all. Never had going to church. 
Oh, we were, same yeah. here. It's you know the entire twenty years I was there. It's I had read the Bible I think twice and um, good job. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> twice. Yeah. And um, like none of them actually stood out. None of the uh, contradictions really stood out to me because when I read it, it was more the again the this is truth. This is completely inerrant and. I think saying the fact, like starting out with the idea that it is completely inerrant and infallible then blinds me to mm-hmm. seeing any contradictions as contradictions. So Plus, they're not, they're not really taught that way. I mean, yeah, exactly. The, all the stories, I think Ehrman makes a, a good point, all, all the different books, most all of them, have a different message. The author that wrote the books was meaning to give you a different message. But in today's version of it that you get in the church with the pastor and so on and so forth, you get a shuffled version mm-hmm. in which they all are part of the same story, and they really aren't. Exactly. That, 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 those are two of the, the main points that Ehrman makes in this book. One is to just point out the many contradictions, and that can be just simple contradictions, like the day that Jesus died, what he said when he was dying on the cross, whether he was in agony or if he was just resigned to his fate and, and totally holy about it. Um, there, there, there are tons of contradictions between the different accounts in the Bible, the different Gospels. And then there's the fact that, um, that these different Gospels not only have contradictions, but they have different theologies, almost. When you look at what they actually, the, the doctrines they imply, the, the core values, the core values, they're completely different. So when you kind of take these cards that are the, the Gospels and the, and the Epistles, and you kind of just shuffle them together, like you're saying, Larry, that it creates this kind of motley uh, mosaic of different beliefs and ideas. And when you're studying the Bible as, as the inerrant Word of God, it just all becomes one thing. So then you, you look at all these different itemized um, pieces of information, and then you can kind of put them together and create your own mass, you know, uh, religious narrative out of it. When, when you look at the books themselves, the, what, the thing that, that results from that is nowhere present in the actual yeah, books themselves. It's like Herman like said in his book that, you know, people have to come up with these dramatic stories to try and explain all the different stuff that are contained in all the different books. But the, the things that they come up with aren't actually in the Bible itself. So, kind of like a Rorschach test. You kind of choose and pick. Yeah. psychologically what you want to believe or what you want to discard. And it's, and religion is very much an emotional-based uh, construct, and that's a very manipulatable um, mm-hmm. way of, of controlling segments of the population or, or a society. And there are the powers that be that put together these kinds of fledgling ideas, um, and, the, and the more you you have a variety of ideas that can be talked about and conversed about and argued about and going to war about the mm-hmm. more people you engage yep. in this process. And it's, it's seductive. Yeah. And you get into it and you have no idea that you are devolving as a thinking, rational human being. Um, it's, you know, yeah. You think that you're you think going and become alive, but... You're becoming you're not, more irrational. Yeah, but you're becoming more irrational, so you're not able to see what you're actually doing. And just like you said, you know, you've got such conflict, conflicting messages that don't stand out in the way that they would 
if you really did a comparative analysis like Airman is talking about. And what that does to me, it says that the power structure in control, much like what you're saying, uh, is what what it's doing is it's giving it more and more freedom to tell the story that it wants to tell mm -hmm. at any given time. Yeah. So we can not only you know change the picture of the truth in their words, truth in quotes, but we can make it change in time to feed yeah. the need that we have as controllers. But, but you can also take all of all of these little pieces that you have all over the place of, of people, you know, I believe this and they believe that, and no, it's, it's, it's this way. And eventually over generations, you kind of hone that. It, it hones itself down into a, a much more much more stronger lines of religious uh, ideology or, or belief systems so, so that... Um, a bigger un, unwieldy construct that then progresses into politics, it progresses into social mm -hmm. structures, it, it progresses into justice systems. Yeah. And so um, this, these, these, little, these little starter things have now have, have their, their force and power of their own that, that the hands behind that are, are pulling the strings have you know, a mechanism. Mm -hmm. And if we look at the how the, uh, the history of Christianity and how it developed in the early years, uh, it's it's really fascinating to to look at how how we got to where we are today. I think Carolyn, we've got all these uh, individual ideas, and it's it's like a pit of raw material work um, to to get basically a willing population to go along with. Is what you want to do, but that's exactly what we had in Christianity. And whether by um, by accident or design, in in the first like two centuries, um, as Christianity was developing, we have tons of different groups, um, very different to other in there. Like those that we have in the in the Bible are just four gospels of four examples of four different kind of uh, theologies, if you will. But there are tons of Gospels. It's like um, in the second century, probably, Gospel or, or, or all handed on. And they're all different from each other. You had the, the Gnostics. You had the kind of proto-Catholics that um, kind of wanted to appropriate the Old Testament um, for themselves and kind of divest themselves of the, the, the Judaic, um, um, how do you put it, the Torah, the, the law. Like they, did, they, they wanted to latch on to the, the history of Israel and the Old Testament, but they didn't want to be Jews. Then you had the... Then you had, they, had a, they wanted to to use it as like justification or verification of their own Yeah, a legit, a legitimization. Legitimize it, yeah. Their, their own ancient origins. <laughs> and then you had the actual like Jewish Christians who were full-fledged Jews who just ha you know happened to, to believe in this Jesus guy as well. Then you had the, the more like Hellenistic groups that um, that didn't really um, think the Old Testament had much to do with anything or or Judaism. They were more just um, they, like a, a Paul, for example. Read Paul's letters, like he makes to to get away from that and to say that no, the the you don't need the Torah, you don't need the law, you don't need circumcision, you know all, all the only thing that matters is the faces, having the 
because that's a topic too. He may oh. can do uh, early, earliest accounts. By true, I mean they're early. Exactly, and because that's another problem that we get into in Ehrman's book, is that when we look at the, 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 the history of the actual text itself, the New Testament, um, the, for full and partial manuscripts, um, like for, well, for full books and, and the full New Testament, we've got basically manuscripts from like the, the third, and, third and fourth and fifth century, um, you know, hundreds of years after the fact. When we look back at these early formative years, we have copies of copies of copies of copies of books that were originally, allegedly written then, but uh, allegedly by these people. And the conclusion of, of pretty much all biblical scholars is that the vast majority of the books in the Bible, A, were not written by the people whose names are attached to them, like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Probably the um, probably only some of the letters of Paul were actually written by Paul and... Um, and assuming that was Paul. <laughs> yeah, assuming that was Paul. Assuming Paul was his real name. And... Uh, and so we look back at that point, and we've got copies and copies and copies, copies of copies of copies. We don't know who wrote these documents. We don't know. We, sometimes we can have an idea of when they might have been written. Um, but when when you get to a certain point around, like, um, in the second century, like 100 to 150 AD, we can start seeing sources that quote different books, like that quote Paul's letters or that quote certain gospels. We don't have any documents from before, and second, these people, fathers writing about these topics, we don't know necessarily if they said exactly what they said, you know, how much has been changed in those manuscripts, so it just becomes a total mess when you try to think about it. But when you, um, you know, if we just use probabilities, as, as historians do, we, we can come to certain conclusions, and um, one of the conclusions that, you know, I've come to after reading this book and, and several others is that, that's kind of the, this is kind of the, the point at which we don't really have much information before, you know, the first half of the second century. We really don't have any firm, absolute idea on what was going on before. All we have are some, is some information about some of the books that existed at that time. And then some people at that time writing about things that might have happened before, but we have no way of verifying what was going on before. Right, that's an argument for what maybe the earliest quotes were really were valid for early make make out, and I have to agree. I kind of uh, agree with his arguments after he went through the analysis that the uh, earliest Jesus, in the very earliest times, that maybe is would be in the first two generations, you know, uh, after the supposed death of, of Jesus. So this would be like the the second half of the first century, basically. Yes, yes. This would this be somewhere where uh, Jesus is portrayed as a as a apocalypse, apocalypse, apocalyptic, whatever it is. Yeah. But with that being the case, uh, that would kind of, it made sense to me in the sense that uh, what you've got, how are you going to get the most attention from somebody? You're going to you're going to you know. You're the message of extreme need in the time that you're trying to deliver. Mm -hmm. yep. the, the end is coming, Judgment Day, all these different little snippets that you know, come out and, and in Ehrman's analysis go back to the very earliest documents. 
at least what he believes to be. Mm-hmm. And then uh, if you approach it from, uh, okay, now we get past the first generation, now we're past the second generation, your stories are going to have to change because the end has not come. Mm-hmm. The end is, 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 is still a ways off in the future, and you still want control of the minds of all these people, bring them back into the fold, so on and so forth. So the stories begin to change, the books change, the authors change the message. The interpretation has to change as well. Yeah, same thing, right? And the, and the suffering goes on for much, much, much longer. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and what's, what's, the, what's the better way to control people than to make them believe they have to suffer? Mm-hmm. It's a way out. The only way you can get through suffering. Suffering, and if you do it right, if you suffer right, if you, if yeah. you become very good at suffering, then you have this reward in heaven sometime in your distant future, and, and you'll reap the rewards mm-hmm. there. But you know, that's 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 uh, being already bought the, the steps up to menu kind of the big lie, and. You know, who in, who in their right mind is going to sign up for suffering? I mean, it's just like stupid. <laughs> well, we could get into that, but well, different. that's a different. Well, but, that's, but anyway, uh, you've got, uh, you know, once you get, you know, uh, maybe five to ten generations down the line, now you have to step in with the council of Nicaea. You've got, uh, you know, Really big effort. Constantine, mm-hmm. so on, so yeah. forth. You got a big, big effort to bring all this stuff together. Some canonical dot together. Yeah. This is the interpretation. This is the standard book by which we measure, which is what we have now. Something very close. Yeah. So, looking seeing how it's all come as this whole of cups. Um, all um, then how come it has trickled trickle to the generation? Like, they actually know that certain people were actually this time. How can they even say, knowing that this is wrong, how can they tell people and uh, uh, essentially use them for their tithes? Um, uh, because they're part of the system. No. Like, are they part of a, the major control system, or are they just you know? They're willing, they're willing all the way down to the, to the small church, because um, they also are are under the the umbrella of I only can believe what I let myself believe. Mm-hmm. So, so there are aspects of all of that information that these you know priests or or ministers are not accepting in the psyche. And if they were to go into the congregations and start telling, you know, all that is, um, they, they have a congregation of people who also have the same mindset mm-hmm. that are not going to filter through and, and understand and incorporate the new information. So their congregation A couple hundred people sitting there in the pew. If he makes more, week or two. Well, it's like you said, books are in nature. It's not a simple of you someone and then 
and then they're going to find their religion that works. Um, in the religion, so and they are very difficult to get out of because they are these emotionally held beliefs, and they you can't change your people don't change their beliefs rationally. Like like I was saying, you can't just give someone an expect and uh, and you know convert them to to Bart Ehrman. Yeah. Um, they will read these and they may they may experience cognitive dissonance. dissonance. They may um, reject it just out of hand because like those Fox News reporters that we played earlier, they just don't want to hear it. Well, you know, oh, I don't think about that kind of stuff. And so there, if um, if anyone has a plan to to uh, you know, de-Christianify the, the it's not going to happen because that that's not the way um, are changed or true, you know true, people. But, but Adam <clears throat> was, uh, I think, referring to the the ministry, mm-hmm. the pastors, the ones yeah. that have yeah. gone to school that have learned these things, mm-hmm. and they know this. They, it's up to them to pass that kind of information on yeah, if they choose to do so. Ehrman gave the. I think he gave them uh, ministers and pastors and. I think he gave them too much leeway uh, because if you know this and yet you still propagate the lie, yeah. then that now who's the real devil? Exactly. <laughs> that, that's it's completely pathological. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and another thing is that if, if someone has a very strong belief system and someone else comes up and says, here's proof that this that what you're believing is wrong. Um, mm-hmm. Here's proof. Here's proof. Here's proof. That person doesn't accept the, tr- the truth. <laughs> no. They they get more ingrained and more deeply ingrained in their belief system. It's it's mm-hmm. the oddest thing, but that's study after study has shown mm-hmm. that's what happens. So it takes a it takes a real shock to the system, uh, like Paul had. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, like, uh, what I always think of is from the movie They Live. Yeah. The, the fight scene in They Live, where <laughs> you know, the one guy just won't accept the truth, and they get into this like seven-minute-long fight scene, and <laughs> and you know that's what it's like. Um, you can't just tell a person someone something like that and then expect them to accept it immediately. It's just not going to happen. And that's why I think it's a prison because how do you get out of it? What it really takes is that inner, um, that inner wish for for truth, basically, and the willingness to go through the suffering, you know, the real suffering. That this is the kind of suffering that one takes on for oneself. The suffering to that. Um, um, that you go through if you do, if you want the truth. Exactly, and so that in a, in a sense, the Christianity is not so bad in that it 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 can instill in a person this love for truth and to seek the truth. But then once you reach that point, and you and um, and you start seeing that, oh well, this can't be the inerrant word of God because first of all, it's obviously errant. There are obviously errors and contradictions. And look at this: the manuscripts change from one to the other. None of them are identical. Um, you know how can how can God make such mistakes? Well, obviously, these books were written by human beings. And so that love of truth causes you to question. The, the the foundations of the very religion that instilled that love of truth in you, well, possibly. And even in the preface, you know, uh, Ehrman wrote that there's two basic things here uh, on a scale, if you want to put it that way. You've got faith or belief 
and you've got truth. So which which one are you mm-hmm. going to really pursue? And if you decide to pursue the truth, then his argument is, of course, you could become an agnostic with respect to all mm-hmm. the details and the and the propaganda. Well, I mean, between faith and proof, proof, um, proof is is the reward in its own end, mm-hmm. and and that's only something that you can do for yourself. Faith is something you can be promised paradise. You know, it's it's a hard one to give up. Did I say proof? Truth? Truth. I just want to make sure I didn't do wrong. I'm myself. So so really, like the way out of the out of the prison is to go through the suffering of thinking about these things and coming to your to your own conclusions. And like you were saying earlier, Karen, about, um, you know, when you read a book like the Bible, people pick and choose what they want to believe, right? And um, in a sense, that's the, that's probably the only thing you can do is you go through and you, and you pick and choose. But a lot of people do that without a basis in um, kind of like objective history and what really happened. Now, if you're reading a, a part in the Bible that you really like, and then you find like, um, and then you find out that that was a later edition by some scribe. Well, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's a bad idea, but you should be aware that it wasn't part of like the original Bible, and it should give you some insight in how the Bible was constructed over a long period of time, and that might um, have its effect on some of your other beliefs and doctrines, like you know, one being the inerrant Word of God. So, okay, so cross that one off the list. But you've still got that passage that was really meaningful for you. Um, and, and I think yeah. the, the power have over you to, to be, be a better person. Yeah. Sure. At the same time, there will be passages in the Bible that you look to as the inerrant word of God that basically um, are um, influencing you to be a nasty person. Because <laughs> like you're saying, you've got this book um, with all these ideas in it that can be uh, that used by the powers that be at will because, oh, I need this in this situation, so I'll use that one. So whenever we go to war, you know, we'll pick some bellicose um, passage from the Old Testament to justify going and killing all the women and children in this, vi- in this village, for example. And then, okay, you can get away with it. But now if I look back and if I know a little bit of, about the Bible and it's not the inerrant word of God, I can say, okay, well, actually, that's a terrible idea. You know, <laughs> Obviously, that was written by a person who was pretty sick in the head. So you begin to separate out those things that are meaningful to you in your life based on your truth and weed out the things that are not. And that's the beginning of that focus on the truth. You know, mm-hmm. Focus on the truth, objective truth, and the truth that you feel, you know, inside. Mm-hmm. But oftentimes, truth is not rewarded in society. Yeah. You no. know, even, even Jesus was accused of blasphemy. In fact, mm-hmm. that was supposedly the reason why he was put to death was because he had blasphemed uh, mm-hmm. and off- offended somebody's you know, sensibilities. Um, and and what religions do and social control does is it, it creates differences between insiders and outsiders. Mm-hmm. And it becomes kind of a, a predatory survival instinct to you know, eliminate, eliminate the opposition. Therefore, who's left is right. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that it's it's oftentimes um, kind of correlated with animalistic characteristics. Yeah, and, and it and it, it devolves humanity down to a more basic, you know, 
kind of organism. Base, yeah. Base. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and animalistic, in other words, psychopathic. And how do psychopaths operate? Well, they, you know, they create their little in-group of patsies and pawns that they use to, you know, affect whatever devious plans they have in for mind their for their own interests. And that's, it, it works the same in corporations and businesses, in, you know, police departments, in, um, you know, government offices, and then in, in geopolitics, you have this, this method, and it's tried and tested, and everyone uses it, the cre- this creation of insiders and, uh, and outgroup. And so what they essentially end up doing is taking all the qualities that they themselves have as psychopaths, as being like bloodthirsty monsters that will do anything to, to get what they want, and then they'll just project all that onto the non-believers. And so they've got this whole group of people who are invested in this belief that then see, oh, well, yeah, because we know the truth and we've got, we're the true followers of God and they're not. And so therefore they must be these, these evil people. And so then they, they end up doing the will of the, of the psychopaths themselves that are egging this on. So really the, the people that are in charge in, the, in your own in-group have more in common with what they say the out-group is than you think. Yeah. Yeah, but you you know you would think that like a Western society would have maybe um, a heads up on on some kinds of things because people you know have freedom here and and, and there's kind of an, an ascending theory of, of legitimacy um, and and in religion it's it's kind of that that the people have the power and they can choose the the religion that they want to mm-hmm. part, partake of. Um, in the Middle East, for example, um, it's kind of a descending theory of legitimacy. You have you have a, a, a supreme person like Muhammad mm-hmm. that makes these edicts, and this is uh, this this stuff comes down by divine right, and mm-hmm. so the religion chooses the people. So there's there's two two different vectors, but they all end up kind of being in the same place. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's, it's, it's like take two, taking two different roads, yeah. and they all end up at the, at, at the sinkhole. Yeah. They're all used, you know, and even at a higher level. Yeah. It's it's like democracy and authoritarianism. You know, mm-hmm. so you have a strong leader or you've got, you know, a democratically elected parliament senators or whatever. But really when you look at it, they're they can they can be the same thing essentially. Um I mean look at democracy. It's not democracy. And yet pair that to other systems of government. Of course, you can have a, a brutal dictatorship, but if you can have a good democracy, which most people think we have over here, but we don't, you can have a good dictatorship in a sense. If the, the system in place and if the, the so-called dictator is a decent person, it's doing decent, exactly. Yeah. So, but but so just like in the religions where we've got um, the inside group and then the outsiders who are heathens or or uh, whatever. We've we've got this kind of religious attitude to our government system, where we see any kind of alternative form of government as inherently evil, and therefore we must go and spread democracy to them, democracy our way, and we'll use torture on our way to to, yeah. <laughs> to do it. But so many people are caught up in that illusion. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's it's crazy. <laughs> So bring it all back. It's uh, 
you know, in order to get people to uh, to continue believing uh, in or to be too afraid to even think outside of, you know, what they were raised in, be that Christian fundamentalism or be that, uh, you know, the United States form of a republic or be that something else, you have to threaten them with torture and whatever that is, be that mm-hmm. eternal damnation or get mo. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just okay. sick. <laughs> yeah, well, um, anything else we want to add in this show? Well, I can't think Good. of anything else right no. now. Well, looks like we might end it there. Um, Did you want to add your discussion on the health? Oh, yeah, we've got... Oh, yeah. Before we close for this week, uh, Adam's got a little update for all you dieters out there. (laughs) Give a little background. Yeah. Um, So there was uh, an abstract that was posted um, sometime recently on... um, Uh, the ketogenic diet, it was um, a comparison between advanced bodybuilders to see uh, and compare how the ketogenic diet stands up to uh, the Mediterranean diet, really. They called it the Western diet, but uh, essentially it was high carb, but there was still a lot of fat, and uh, so that's more Mediterranean. But it was just a comparison to see how the ketogenic diet stood up, because we know that the ketogenic diet is a really good for weight loss, but there's literally nothing in terms of building any kind of muscle mass. And so. just for anyone that's listening that's, that isn't aware of the ketogenic diet, that's essentially a low-carb, high-fat, moderate-protein diet. Right. Yeah. So uh, totally different than what most people... Completely <laughs> different. <laughs> so go on, Adam. Um, yeah, so this is the first um, study that's ever been done on the on the evaluation of the ketogenic diet uh, on the performance for uh, muscle building purposes. And from what we see so far, uh, the ketogenic diet was actually superior both in terms of uh, losing body uh, body fat and building muscle, which is interesting because they weren't planning to uh, try and lose body fat, and yet they did, while at the same time building muscle, which if you know anything about, you know, traditional... Um, bodybuilding that's you know that's completely impossible (laughs) and yet here it is to a significant margin you know in three months people are building 10 pounds of muscle and losing 15 pounds of fat that's huge (laughs) that's huge (laughs) so I'll be keeping my eye open for that one all right yeah and we'll probably be talking a bit more um, about topics like that in the future maybe we'll have Adam back to talk a bit about um, that kind of stuff, because Adam, you do you do a lot of martial arts and uh, yeah, and yeah. Uh, so we've got kind of a an inside source, an expert for for looking at the the use of the ketogenic diet, you know, in an athletic, um, you know, physically active uh, lifestyle. So yeah, for a little background on that, um, I trained with the U.S. Olympic uh, kickboxing coach. Um, and I also train with uh, other world-class martial artists. Um, so I have a a good experience in evaluating the performance of the ketogenic diet and how it keeps up 
Yeah, actually, in smoking as well. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I wanted to ask um, how how do your teachers respond when you when you tell them about your diet or have you like? Um, some of my like direct instructors know uh, about my diet. Some of them, I kind of like I don't go there just because it's not you know yeah. not necessary. Um, they're like, oh, okay, cool. Some <laughs> of them even uh, tried it, and they're like, oh, it's not for me. Oh yeah. Um, but it's really interesting when I bring up that I'm a smoker. <laughs> they just don't know. All right. Well, thanks for that, Adam. And it's, yeah. So we'll end here for tonight. Uh, again, the book that we were discussing. Oh, thank you. Thank you, virtual audience. <laughs> <laughs> the book we were discussing was uh, Jesus Interrupted by Bart Ehrman. And we had Ilan Tiff and William, uh, William uh, on the first half of the show and Larry, Karen, and Adam on the last. So, yeah, say goodbye, everyone. Bye. <laughs> Bye. And we'll, we'll see you next week. All right. Bye-bye, everyone.